You are listening to a sermon series from Open Door Fellowship Church. Well, good morning. Good morning. Merry Christmas. I hear a lot of coughing. I, I hope I'm not the one that gave it to you, but I might have been. I was, uh, before I came here three, a couple of weeks ago, I had been in Oregon at uh, a place called Ecola Bible School. Ecola, it's the name of an Indian. It's, it's the name of an Indian tribe up there, Native American tribe up there, but I've come to call it Ebola Bible College because every time I go, I come home sick. And, uh, so I did. So anyway, this is my Christmas present to you. <laughs> Is your, bron- is your bronchitis? Um, I wanted to finish up with uh, the, I remember the first time I ever taught this, I was teaching, it was a, a Christmas passage, and, and I said, turn to John 1, and, and I had four or five people come to me and say, to say, wow, John 1, it's such a weird place to turn uh, when you're speaking of the incarnation. <laughs> and I remember thinking, wait a minute, that's... that's that's what I thought it was about. But nevertheless, uh, if you've never heard about uh, the incarnation from John 1, you're going to hear it today. Uh, John chapter 1 is where most of this is going to come from. And I want to talk about the joy of having someone to trust. The joy of having someone to trust. I want to pray, and then we will just jump right in. Father, I thank you for um, the privilege of being here. I thank you for the privilege of ministering to your saints. I thank you for the gift of eternal life that makes us new and gives us a special appreciation for this time when we celebrate you sending your Son to be the Savior of the world. And I'm praying that your Holy Spirit would please teach us in such a way that it absolutely can make a difference over the next 48 hours as we uh, step on that treadmill we call Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen. I was teaching uh, to a, a group of college students and teaching on leadership and I was encouraging them to admit the, the disconnect between the myth and the reality. One of the things I find often, it's very difficult in discipling men, and I've been discipling men for 40 years, is that I have to break through the disconnect that uh, they, the, the, the myth that they hang on to concerning their childhood. And I'm not trying to get them to disrespect their parents. I'm not trying to get them to, um, you know, go home, slap your parents and say, look, you made me a mess. Uh, what, what I'm trying to get them to do is to admit to themselves and to me and to God that they're wounded by all of this. And that even the best of parents can, um, can really uh, wound us. So I was talking about how the gospel saves us from all of this. 
and from the way that we were treated as little children and the things that people told us about ourselves. And each of us, uh, no matter how healthy our upbringing and whether we know it or not, we live with these deep needs to be rescued from the wounds, well-meaning parents' wound. I, uh, I have wounded my children. It's always been an interesting conversation when I say to them, you know, your mom and I are interested in uh, how we wounded you growing up. And after about 45 minutes, I will say to them, so are there any wounds that you got from your mom? Anyway, I was telling the story, and I was suddenly uh, overcome with emotion, so much so that I broke down in class. And, and I just started weeping. I could not go on. It took me by surprise. I was taking them, I thought, on this journey of thinking through some of the most hurtful and wounding experiences of their childhood, things that came from parents and teachers and friends and uh, since this was in a Christian school, uh, pastors. And I was thinking of my own childhood that was so unsafe, with no emotional room to breathe. Um, every day was a performance day. There was little, if any, affirmation. I was constantly proving myself worthy. I was taking care of people uh, who should have been taking care of me. And I had no allies in this, so I found my own. And those were my peers in the 60s. We found each other. And we were allies, I guess. Uh, we basically ruined each other, but we thought we were helping each other. But what surprised me that afternoon, teaching there, in that college was that my emotion wasn't despair, it wasn't bitterness, and it wasn't regret. It was joy. It caused me to think back on that day when Keith, who you've met, I don't know, if, I don't think Keith's here today, he lives here in Phoenix now, Keith Osborne, young life leader, set me down on a curb, nine o'clock at night, in Bakersfield, California, opened the Bible, and started explaining to me the unadulterated, uncompromised gospel of Jesus Christ. And I trusted in Christ, and I can still remember he took me, now that I know more about it, I don't know if it was the right passage or not, but who cares, it worked for me. I've done it many times, even wondering if it was the right passage. I just know what joy it brings to a new believing heart. And he took me to Luke, and he said, hey, look, right now in heaven, the angels are having a party because of you. I remember going home that night thinking, wow. I don't know if I've ever been celebrated anywhere in my whole life. But tonight I'm being celebrated in heaven. It was, joy, it was the joy of meeting Jesus 
and being introduced to for the very first time in my entire life someone I could trust. Someone perfectly reliable and strong. He loved me, the real me, the weak me, the scared me, the lonely me, the one who had been hardwired by the God of the universe with a need to be loved. I met him that night face to face. The very person of Jesus Christ. And I knew with unshakable confidence because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in my life that Jesus of Nazareth was saying to me, take my hand, trust me, I will make you new. I found out later he already had. But, and I will care for you. Uh, this is the way the, the Apostle John presents the incarnation, the person of Jesus Christ. He makes the point over and over and over and over again that Jesus, God in the flesh, is more than anything else to us. A person, a person to trust. I want to give you an overview, a good a lesson on the book of John. There are 66 books of the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. And this might be an insight for you. If it is, I'm happy to tell you this, because it is going to help your reading of the Bible so much. Of the 66 books of the Bible, very little of the Bible is written to unbelievers. Most of the Bible is written to people, <coughs> excuse me, like you and me, most of us here today, who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. And it's telling us how good he is, how he cares for us, the blessings that we have in him, what it is that he wants us to do to uh, live a fulfilled life that can only be lived by his people. That's what it's all about. And it just bothers me. It doesn't bother me. It, it torques me when someone will turn unbelievers to a passage that is two believers telling us how to live the Christian life and say to them, this is what you have to do to be a Christian. Good night. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the community. We have the scriptures. And on our best day, we're barely pulling it off. And they're standing up there telling these people without the Holy Spirit... It's what you need to do. John doesn't do this. I believe that John wrote late in the church. I take the later date of John, about 90. And I think that he was taking care of Mary, and then um, 
mean, it's not like they needed the new gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke had already written their gospels. But I do believe that John um, was thinking to himself, and he says, the one thing I want to make very, very clear is that Jesus is a person to trust. And trust is what makes the entire thing go. So we read in 1, 1 through 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But we read in verses 12 and 13, John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. This is where he's introducing his book. And he says, you're going to read about a lot of people. You're going to read some stories about a lot of people. Most of the stories that you read are going to be about people who reject Jesus Christ. Some, a few of the stories you read are going to be about people who trust Jesus Christ. Those are the stories that should capture your attention. John chapter 1, verse 12. I'll speak in verse 11. He came <clears throat> to what was his own, but his own people did not receive him. But all those who have received him, and then he defines it, those who believe in his name, he has given the right to become God's children, children not born by human parents or by human desire or a husband's decision. All the ladies go, <laughs> that's a good point there, but by God. So you read a lot of stories, some of these, woman at the well, some of these, the first five disciples in John 2, some of these are going to believe, and they are going to become God's children. Though most reject him, those receive him by believing in his name, and believing in his name, in his name is a technical term in the book of John. It's believing what Jesus says about himself, that he is the rescuer, another way that we could translate Messiah. He's the rescuer sent by God. He is the Messiah of Israel. He is the savior of the world. That is what he wants us to believe. He's not saying, my name's Jesus. He doesn't want us to go, oh, oh I believe that. Hey, Jesus, how you doing? Believe in his name what his name represents about what he's saying about himself. He is the Christ, the Son of God. The word believe or trust in the book of John uh, occurs 98 times. 98 times. Now, if you'll stick with me, we're at the beginning of the book of John. Now turn toward the end of the book of John. I want to make sure that we put the book of John in its perspective. John, uh, verse 20, verse 30. John 20, verse 30. Now Jesus performed many other miracles, miraculous signs, in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. 
But these are recorded so that you, reader, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So from beginning to end, the book of John is the book to everybody that says Jesus is the Son of God, and he's asking you to trust him. Obviously, in the middle, in John 13 through 17, it's a little bit different there. He's pulling his disciples up into the upper room, and he's preparing them to be apostles. But John 1 through 11, we have the, the seven signs of John. Then we have his passion. And at the end, he says, this is why I wrote the book. This is the apostle John, A.D. 90. And all you got to do is read the book of Galatians, read the book of Romans, Read the writings of Paul, and you realize that by the time John is writing the gospel, that this had already been garbled. Religious people were already beginning to take over the good news and turn it into something else, into performance, into work. So he says, believe. I do this every once in a while, and please, it's not to impress. I took Greek and Hebrew 40 years ago, and so for me to put together something like this, I used to do this in five minutes. Last week it took me two and a half hours, but this is just what I love about the Greek text is that when you go out into the, we get down into the minutia, a lot of times people say, ah, you know, you grace guys. You just tell the people it's grace because grace would be popular. My answer to that is, read church history. Grace has never been popular. It's less popular today than it was when I trusted Christ during the Jesus movement. But there is this real special construction. Believe in Christ. The Greek word is pistuo. And then you, if it's in something, you would think that the case would be the dating. That would be the direct object. That's just what you would expect. Um, and then I have here from a guy named C.H. Dodd, pestuing with the dative so inevitably connoted simple credence or agreement in the sense of an intellectual judgment that the moral element of personal trust or reliance inherent in the Hebrew and the Aramaic phrase an element integral to the primitive Christian conception of faith in Christ needed to be otherwise expressed. So the word believe occurs 98 times in the book of John, 11 times in Matthew, 14 <coughs> in Mark, 9 times in Luke. This formula, believe in Christ, this is what I want you to understand, how emphatic this is. This is, and John was not a knucklehead. This is bad Greek to make a point. He doesn't say, believe in Jesus, Jesus being the dative, so that it would be the direct object of our faith, because that was used throughout the New Testament world to mean simple agreement. Okay, I believe he's Jesus. I believe that. 
he uses ice, which is a thrusting preposition. It is a thrusting preposition. I believe in. And then he puts Jesus in the accusative, which is totally out of place, which is speaking absolutely and emphatically of his personhood. So you take this down just to the minutia, and you find out that what John is saying is you have to believe in Jesus and who he said he was, and it's not just saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I think he lived. Yeah, okay, there's some evidence. It's trust. It is trust. There's a difference between believing something is true and trusting in that. When I was in that little legalistic church, my first one, in Detroit, Michigan, we had one of these guys, you know, the guys with the keys? You probably have to come around here. Got the key belt, you know? I've never had a key belt in my life. I can't build a doghouse. Why give me a key? I, could, I wouldn't know what to do with it. But you always got the key guy. You know, he's the guy with all the keys. He can fix all the stuff. And we had all these old chairs. And they were broken. I don't know what they were made of because I don't know anything. I remember one time I was in the motor pool and I asked my chief, the maintenance tech, I said, hey, would you mind if I tried to weld that? He goes, well, sir, this is a pretty expensive piece of, uh, I think I can do it. I I think I can do it. He goes, it's a pretty expensive component. Come on, let me try it, chief. Let me try it. So he gave me a little welding lesson. And I got that thing and I went, and I just drilled a hole all the way through it. And he said, that's all right. I, had, I knew I had another one when I let you mess with that. <laughs> so anyway, this guy, we had all these broken metal chairs. And he said, I can fix these. And it was some type of, is it, is it a MIG welder? Somebody knows more than me. I think it's some type of a welder that isn't for, anyway, he was using one of those. And I knew enough from my army time to know that this was hard. And I said, do you think you ought to use that on the... He goes, oh, no, don't worry, man. I'm going to save the church a lot of money. Said, okay, fine. So he welded all these broken chairs. But two months later, we had potluck. And there's this one lady in our church. I called her Sister Wheatcakes. She was like church boss. You ever been around one of those ladies at church boss? Everybody had, you know, everybody had to watch out for Sister Wheat Cakes. It's one of the greatest moments, very sinful moment, but it was still a lot of fun. What? <laughs> Sister Wheat Cakes got her tray, and uh, she really loaded it up. And we had the tables, you know, the way you did the potluck, had the chairs sitting all around. And she believed in that chair. She believed in that chair with all her heart, and she proved it by the way she sat down. Problem is that the chair was not worthy of her trust. And it let go almost immediately. 
And I can still remember, the first time I've ever seen a woman that large do a double back flip. Um, and I will always remember that. That is what John is saying. That's what John's saying to you and saying to me. I'm telling you, you have somebody you can trust. He's worthy of your trust. He reported the words and deeds of Jesus that most encourage us to believe in his name, to become children of God by receiving eternal life. He came to earth so that we can meet God in person and trust in him. And this is the way we do relationships. In that same Baptist church, I remember we had, I had to, there was an associate pastor, and we, we were absolutely oil and water, and I was so, um, I was just really, really hard to live with as a religious leader back then. And I, and I was so angry, I was so angry at religion. And this was a real traditional church, and this guy came from a real traditional background, and we did not get along. So the um, elders, or the deacons in that church, I said, I want you to go to a pastor's conference at Moody Bible Institute. So I was in Detroit. I go to this pastor's conference at Moody Bible Institute. I'm with this guy. And I'm really, I'm trying to go, hey, tell me, you know, um, you ever talk to someone who could only talk religio talk? And I would say, yeah, well, praise the Lord. <laughs> so I go to this thing, and I think, oh, Lord, why am I here? What am I doing? It was a Moody Bible Institute, so they, a lot of his friends were there. I didn't know anybody at Moody. I came from the West Coast. I could barely say, you know, so here I am, I, and I'm walking. I'll never forget the moment. I'm walking along campus. This guy comes walking toward me, and I, I thought, uh, don't I remember you from the weight room at Dallas? Are you? Yeah. Did, did you go? Yeah. I, I went, yeah. He stuck out his hand, and he said, hi, I'm Kevin Butcher. Yeah, that Kevin Butcher. I shook his hand. I started trying to get to know him. We were sitting in a pastor's conference where all these guys were up there bragging about their big churches. And I remember thinking, I get to get it out of here. And Kevin looked over at me and he goes, this is a crock. You want to go get coffee? <laughs> I remember thinking, yeah, sure. That relationship has made every difference in my life. He's the one who came to my hospital the night I almost died, whispered in my ear, Jesus loves you, and so do I. He has just meant everything to me, but I had to meet him. That's the way the Bible works. You've got to meet Jesus, and the Gospel of John is the introduction. The Gospel of John is here to introduce you and me to someone we can trust. Trust is... What we need without trust doesn't work. He came to earth asking you to trust in him. And he will not let you down. 
He presents Jesus emphasizing that the baby in the manger was God in the flesh, an actual person you could meet and know. And he makes sure we understand the one foremost request is that will we trust him? Not only for eternal life, if you're here and you're not yet placed your faith in Jesus, that's, that's what he's asking for you, of you. He's not asking you to perform for him. He would love it if you came to church next week, but he's not keeping score. Uh, he loves you, and he wants you to trust him. Into the gap of what we most want in life, that we least get in life, wanting someone we can trust, steps Jesus Christ, and he just overwhelms all the categories we have of those who are taking care of themselves and don't care about us. And I never, I need a God like Jesus that I can trust. Uh, last week, so I've talked to you who may not yet have believed in Jesus. You can trust him. John 3.16 is true. I'm not saying this, Jesus said it. My Father sent me to give you eternal life, but you need to trust me. You need to trust that I love you enough to die for your sins. That's how you meet him. I need somebody to trust as I walk through life, too. And I was thinking about all of this, and last week, uh, from the very beginning of my Christian life, I, I, I just haven't done well with religious people. And, and it comes from my own wounds. I can remember as a brand new Jesus Movement guy, Keith asked me to go speak at a church, and I spoke at a church, and I talked about coming to Christ. It, I think it was the first time I'd ever been in a church. It was on like a Tuesday night, and I'm all excited about Jesus. And um, this lady said to me, she said, why don't you come on over to the fellowship hall? And I remember thinking, fellowship hall? What a concept. They have a whole hall where all they do is fellowship. So I went to the fellowship hall. And I got a piece of pie. And I was thinking, fellowship hall with pie. <laughs> and this same lady came to me and she said, where do you go to church? And I said, I go to Fruitvale Community Church. It's a church out in the country. Pastor's name's Ted Stone. He's teaching through 1 Corinthians. You should come. He's really a good teacher. And she said, I knew you went to that church. It's where all you young life people go. You don't even belong in the church. Look the way you're dressed. Look at your hair. Where and what do they call those? I said, these are Hirachi sandals. Where in those the church? And I remember thinking, huh. 
Something I didn't understand about this word, fellowship. <laughs> I have a thousand stories like that to tell. So last week, we had a staff meeting. And one of our staff people got a little bit religious on us. Got real religious on us. Started talking about a lot of religious stuff we ought to do, and talking in religious language that we ought to use, and arguing in very religious, churchy terms. And I don't know what was going on in my life at the time. All I know is that I came unglued. And I looked at her and I said, something along these lines, I've been here for 20 years. We don't do stuff like that. We had to turn this thing around. This was a religious, politically driven church. It's had nothing but problems and things like that. You're talking about religious stuff. I'm telling you, Jesus doesn't care about that stuff. And we don't do stuff like that here. You just have to come up with another idea. Yeah, that's me. And I've been doing it all my life. Because I'm always absolutely positive. You know, Kevin Butcher said to me once, he said, does it ever occur to you that you're actually wrong? <laughs> and I said, very seldom. <laughs> and immediately, as soon as I said it, I just thought, Ed, what are you doing? You're not the lead pastor anymore. You're bragging to everybody. You're going to go back to Phoenix this week and talk about how you've let go. You haven't let go of anything. You hurt this woman. She just sat there looking at me in shock. And I went back to my office. And I said, Jesus, I need something here. I need something. This is oh so wrong. I am so ashamed of myself. And the Holy Spirit drew me towards Peter denying Jesus in the garden. These are the words that I wrote in my journal. Jesus' striking respect for the dignity of Peter was so apparent there. He had denied him. And Luke tells us, the Lord turned around and looked at Peter. Jesus looked. He didn't scold, didn't correct, he didn't shame. He looked. He looked with the holy eyes that had loved Peter in ways no other had ever loved the impulsive Galilean fisherman before. I can't identify with Joseph. If it had been me, I'd have crawled out of the hole and thrown my brothers in. But man, can I identify with Peter? He's always opening his mouth. He's always saying the wrong thing. He looked in those eyes that loved Peter in ways he had never been loved before. 
in the moment he had so violated the relationship of the one that he had confessed as the Christ, Jesus looked into his eyes, and this is what saved me, saw into Peter's terrified soul, tolerated his self-protective pathologies, and loved him. Jesus loves his own with complete and unconditional acceptance. Never excusing our shortcomings. I didn't feel like Jesus was saying, you know, that was really a good idea to down on that poor lady. Always urging me toward godliness, I could hear him say, what did you learn? But he demonstrated my personal worth by respecting my human dignity. And I was ready to move on Follow Jesus one more time. This is why we can trust him. In our worst moments, he looks into our eyes behind the retina and into the heart. And he sees the wounds. He sees the hurts. And he patiently says, I want you to trust me. There's a better way to live. This is Christianity. This is the incarnation from the book of John. But to all who have received him, namely, those who believe in his name, he has given the right to become the children of God. We were created by the God of the universe with a deep need to be loved. That need was met in, spect in spectacular, cosmic ways through the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. The Son of God came to earth asking men and women to trust him. You would expect God to come in earth demanding, not Jesus. He came to earth offering. And we can trust him. We can trust him. We can trust him. We can trust him. We can trust him to do what he says to save us from our sin. And then for the rest of our lives, like he did for me last Tuesday. We can trust him to love us enough to save us from ourselves. Father, we thank you for the joy of Christmas that we have someone to trust. Not someone to excuse our behavior, but someone who loves us through it. And I would suspect that over the next 48 hours, many of us are going to act out, walk into another room in tears and say, why did I say that to my brother-in-law? That was so hurtful. And I pray that we would remember 
what Jesus would do. Same he did when Peter denied him. He would just look at us, letting us know we won't always be this way. There is hope because we have a person to trust. Praise his holy name. Amen.